Thank you for coming and investing this hour. Not our most pleasant topic as far as sin, but super important. And I think especially in light of what Mark was teaching Sunday um, concerning just uh, our inability to, to come to love and know the Lord Jesus without his movement um, in our hearts and, and lives, um, I think becomes more apparent as we look at this uh, today. I want to give you a quick prayer request, really. Um, Robin Osborne, who is joining uh, today, um, was going to join today, was in a car accident on the way over here. She lives um, close to Greenville, and um, I don't think serious as far as uh, physical injury. I talked to her. She was riding in the ambulance. She was feeling like for sure shaky, I think, um, about everything. And it was uh, um, certainly sad because she was super excited about being here today. But uh, I'd like to um, ask uh, Greg if you would open by praying for Miss Robin. Her husband was going to come and, and meet her. She was in, going to the hospital in Brazelton. And, um, and they were going to check her out. But um, she did say she felt like her car was totaled. And so just a, a bad feeling. And, and we really hurt for her today. So if we could start by uh, praying for her in our study. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that we can come to you uh, because of Jesus to the throne of grace. And Lord, we pray for grace and mercy on Robin right now. Uh, Lord, we are thankful that uh, she survived and that she seems to be okay, definitely shaken. Um, Lord, it's never easy to go through anything like that. But Lord, we pray you'd give the doctors an abundance of wisdom to see anything they might need to see in terms of her, her physical health and well-being. Um, Lord, help her and her husband to draw near to you in this time to find renewed strength and comfort, uh, Lord, in ways they might not have experienced it before. Uh, but Lord, may it only lead to the increase of their worship of you and of your glory in them. Um, but Lord, we just thank you that uh, she is okay um, and she's in good hands. Um, and Lord, we know that even right now we are in good hands as well. Uh, Lord, not because of who's teaching, but because of you um, giving us the Holy Spirit and your word. Uh, Lord, help us be faithful to it. Help us have understanding on this all-important subject of sin. Lord, is un. Um, exciting as it can be, Lord, it's one of the most important topics we can consider. And so, Lord, help us just to see what your word says, uh, to be instructed by it, to be shaped by it, Lord, that we might better uh, live in this world uh, for our Savior and his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, Genesis 6-5. This is uh, quite a list. And, and you might want to just uh, jot these down because these are a list of... Uh, really six, uh, really eight probably, passages that we can look at and just give us a real good idea of, of who we are um, apart from the Savior, who we are naturally. Um, Genesis 6, 5. Mark, would you read that and, um, and then comments from, I think all four of us felt like we're a, uh, a pretty good expert panel on sin. So we feel like um, that's uh, more than what we would like to admit on that. Yeah, a lot of topics we have no experience of, yeah, eternity, one, heaven, mm -hmm. but this one we all have some experience. Uh, Genesis 6, 5, right before the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you talk to us about that, Mark? Well, th this is, when we talk about the term total depravity, I 
there are other verses you can go to that are, that are equally strong, but you can't say it more clearly than this. When God looks at the human race, like as it is, He, he says, look at it one more time, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, that's all humanity, was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil all the time or continually. So, who was evil in this passage? Who was evil? Everybody. Everyone. All mankind. How evil were they? Well, every intention of the thought of every heart was only evil all the time, was only evil continually. This is what we mean by total depravity. It's not a term so much made up by theologians as it is just reading the Bible. That's what it says. And if you wonder if the, the flood solved that problem, if you flip to Genesis, I can't even know if I'll find it in time, but Genesis 9, I believe it says, uh, after the flood, God says that man is still sinful from birth. Does anyone remember where that verse is? Oh, v- v- end of chapter 8. Uh, Verse 14, verse 21, I'm sorry, Genesis 8, 21, after the ark, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So the flood did not solve the problem. The the flood just revealed how deep the problem goes, because even wiping out all of humanity and starting over with these... these, uh, is everyone okay? <laughs> Starting over with the righteous man and his family, even then, what? Man is still sinful in the intentions of his heart from, from, uh, from childhood. Any thoughts on that? Psalm 51 says when this begins. Look at Psalm 51, uh, verse 5. Sometimes it's dangerous to take these out of context. I think these do stand on their own pretty much. Psalm 51, 5, there's so many to look at, we'll have to go through them pretty fast. Greg, how about reading that one? Okay. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so from the moment David entered the world, he says, I was sinful, I was brought forth in iniquity, so sin was a part of me from the moment I came here, but even more than that, He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. And Grudem actually had a good point on this. He's not talking about that his mother was in sin when David was conceived. He's making it personal to the simple fact that the moment I was conceived, I inherited sin. Um, So it's not like we have a gap from when we're conceived to when we're born or at some point after that. The moment human life begins, it is now intertwined with sin. We cannot escape it. It's in all of us. So we've been sinners nine months longer than we've been out of the womb. Yes. Yeah. Which, as a side what? point, the, the full dignity and humanity of a person from conception is right there in that verse. So it, he was a human being since conception, and he was even marked by original sin from conception in the womb. Yeah. No, that's good. There's no pass. No. Nope. That's right. Isaiah 64, 6. They don't get any easier as we go uh, on here. Isaiah 64, 6. And we want to come to some of what Grudem does a good job on so many of these things to, to help us to understand it. But this is foundational. Papa, could you read those, that one for us? 64, 6, Isaiah. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. 
So our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags or like polluted uh, garments. And so that's at the very best, the very best thing that, and in this case, you think about the best thing the unbeliever does. Because before they know the Lord Jesus, there isn't any good in that. Now, how can we explain there are some things that aren't as evil as other things? It's not saying that everybody is completely as evil as they can be. Well, in, in, in discussing um, depravity, we're not as bad as we could be. It's, I think that's what you're saying. I mean, we could be a lot worse. Uh, I think the going back to the uh, Genesis 5 passage, uh, the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. That's, that pretty much covers a waterfront. But um, I think as we go through the Bible and, and the way um, systematic theology defines depravity, we're not as bad as we, we could be. We could be worse. And, and depravity can express itself in different ways. So, for instance... Just to pick an everyday example, a non-believing student in school could be a very good student, work really hard, never get in trouble in class, never interrupt the teacher, never you know, make a joke out of turn, always diligent, taking notes all the time, making straight A's, making hundreds on every test and quiz. And at the end of their whole career, it could have been that the pride of being in first place and being respected could be the very motor that ran their whole life. So what outwardly looked respectable and good, and they got all the awards and accolades by their teachers, and they may have become valedictorian or something like that, a person could be all that outwardly, and yet at the core be doing it for the fundamentally wrong reason, glory of self rather than glory of God. Another student in class may be directly contrary to the teacher, may, may argue with the teacher and get in trouble or spit on somebody or get sent to the principal's office, get expelled from school. That person also is acting from an evil heart. But both of those students are actually acting from a, from a godless heart in this example, but one is less outwardly damaging and one is more outwardly obviously damaging. But neither of them is uh, in the righteous, in, in, in the right before God. We have to have the renewal, all of us have to have the renewing work of the Spirit to turn any of our deeds from polluted garments into, into acts that, while imperfect, please the Lord because they are the aroma of Christ in us. Yeah, good. Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 9. This is... Uh... Four from the Old Testament and four from the New. This is the fourth Old Testament passage to look at. And uh, we'll throw in 10 as well. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Desperately sick. Greg, do you have... Uh, insight on that. The heart is deceitful above all things. Well, it's a liar. Contrary to Disney movies, don't follow your heart. Yeah, that's right. There um, you go. I mean, it, it seems so simple, but I mean, that is the mantra that of everything today is follow your heart. Whatever you desire, that's your heart. Follow it um, because you are what you desire and, um, you know, go after whatever it is you think you are or should be or should have, and no one should tell you otherwise. Um, it should be we should cast doubt on, on our hearts, but instead we're only encouraging people to follow uh, that whatever it is. And the reason why they're doing that is they have no conception of sin. Like that's been removed from the dictionary for a number of decades now. Um, and so the only people who are actually wrong are the people who tell you actually think about what you're going to do before you do it. Evaluate your decisions. Evaluate your desires. Because some desires are actually harmful. 
Um, and we know that if we're honest. We know that um, in some cases, if somebody has a desire to commit murder, we'd say, hey, don't act on that desire. And we say, well, that's not a good desire. Don't follow your heart in that case. And if we can say, don't follow your heart in that case, and logically we can say, well, maybe we need to evaluate other desires as well, and not just what we feel in the moment, but what, are the, what is the, the, the long-term implication and effect going to be of the decision that I'm going to make if I follow through this desire? And we are being trained from as early as we're able to don't give consideration to what your actions are going to do. Just do what you feel, um, and consequences be whatever they are. It doesn't matter as long as you get what you want when you want it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sure. And and another implication here on 10, and I like this, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I testify, not me. He's searching me, and to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds, and mention the student, the unbelieving student with the straight A's and that type thing. Uh, He knows, God knows the motives of the student. This This is why studying what Scripture says about something as negative sounding as this topic, right, our sinfulness, this is so important because if we don't believe in the basic depravity of man, which is taught in Scripture clearly, if we don't believe that, then the problem Greg raised becomes so alluring. Follow your heart. In other words, if I believe my heart is basically good with peripheral problems, then following my heart makes a good deal of sense. Maybe occasionally my heart's going to lead me astray, but fundamentally it's going to lead me in the right direction, and that's why so much of what goes on in our culture today is about looking within, finding your so-called truest self, living out that and identifying with whatever it is in my heart. I find it, I, I identify with it, I claim it as my own, that's who I am, and that must be good because I'm inherently good. So what comes out of me must be inherently good, and therefore identifying with it, following it, making it who I am must be inherently virtuous. That must be what we're going for here, rather than being suspicious of our heart, doubting our heart, and, you know, we're either going to believe our heart and doubt God's Word, or we're going to believe God's Word and doubt our hearts. But the world's going to say, your heart is basically good and Scripture is under suspicion, when it's exactly the opposite. So the, the, the doctrine of depravity will affect how you raise children. Absolutely. You won't just see it as, oh, it's kind of cute or funny the way they act rebellious. No, no, no. This is, there's something deeply wrong with all of us from birth that by God's grace we must learn to shepherd and disciple and work out of them by God's grace as they are led to the gospel and to see how desperate their plight is and, and how much they need saving. And the gospel becomes so beautiful, doesn't it, in, in the back, with this as the backdrop. When you see how dark things are and how needy we are, and that all day long we're being lied to by our heart. All day long, every day. And so we can't trust it. We wouldn't want to trust it. And, and the God's Word gives us such, um, I think, an advantage to say, okay, here at the start of the day, I know one thing. I better not follow my heart. We were studying this in seventh grade, and one of the girls went, raised her hand and said, I got to go take down my poster. I got a poster in my room that says, follow my heart. I got to take that thing down. That's bad advice. But, uh, you're exactly right. Hey, Get before that thing. we go on, um, I want to bring up too, you know, one of the ways we, we know what our heart, like that we can evaluate whether or not what we're desiring is good or bad is to constantly be in the word of God. Because he says, God is the one who tests the heart and tests the mind. And so if we're going to know God's thoughts about our desires, the only way we're going to do that is if we are consistently in the word and as we read, praying, God, if, if my heart does not line up with what I see, with what I'm reading, show me that so that I will know myself well enough not to follow myself. Um, and that's the, the flip of that's also true. God's word is filled with, with commands. It's filled with examples of, 
you know, what we should desire, where we should go, how we should respond. And when we come across something like that, uh, we need to start praying, God, there's an attitude of obedience, an attitude of wanting to please you, glorify you in this. Please grant me that so that I follow you and not the sinful desires of my heart. That's so good. Mark 7, Mark chapter 7, and this, this follows perfectly off that. This is um, Jesus now. Mark 7, 21 and 22. Probably need criminal justice majors to uh, consider this passage. Probably <laughs> any major, but, uh, you know, to, to start to say, what's wrong with the criminal? Was it that they were raised on the wrong, wrong side of the tracks? Was it that they watched bad TV shows when they were little? Yeah, probably all of that might play some part of it, but the real problem is right here. You want to read those first? Yes. 21, 22? Yes. For from within, out of the heart of man, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Comments on that? Well, just from Romans, it, you walk in the flesh or you walk in the spirit. And these are obviously deeds of the flesh. It's where your spirit inclination is. Josh Krause, uh, is he in here? Josh. So, talking to Josh has been helpful because when Josh has done counseling major and been working through counseling, a lot of what he's been doing is sort of contrasting secular counseling with biblical counseling. And they are not… <laughs> They are not the same thing. Even sometimes what is called biblical counseling is not so biblical. It's all, sometimes it's more influenced by worldliness. But one of the things that Josh has helped maybe all of us with as we've thought about this is secular counseling tends to treat your deepest problems as without, from outside of you. So it will always be looking back and, you know, how, are, how, how have someone victimized you? How have you been hurt by someone else? What are something that was said to you when you were young? Kind of like you were mentioning. And, and it focuses 99% of the time, it seems like, on outward factors, circumstances, things around you. And we're not saying those things are irrelevant to your life. What we're saying is they are not most fundamental to your life. Most fundamentally, my problems come from within. And so, this will not necessarily make you popular in the counseling world because people don't want to hear this. But when Jesus is your counselor, He says, listen, you want to talk about your, your problems with theft or adultery or coveting or lying or whatever, it's coming from within. And so, you need deliverance not from uh, rearranging life circumstances only. You, you need deliverance from within. It is within yourself that your greatest enemy lives. And so, that's the flesh. That's the sin nature. And so, that's where we need deliverance, starting from our heart. Yep. Romans 3. The news doesn't get any better. <laughs> Romans 3. Verse 10 through 12. These are about as, oh, I don't know, thorough and... And as you look at them and you kind of say, which, which of these most um, strikes you? There's, there's really six statements here, maybe seven. Greg, you want to read 10 to 12 there for us? 10 to 12, yeah. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I think it's... Pretty obvious from this, I hope it is, 
Um, I mean, follow the statements, none is righteous, no, not one. That means if you were to try to find someone who measures up in God's sight, you're not going to find one. No one understands, understands what the fullness of what they owe God in our sin. We're darkened, we're blind. No one seeks for God. Um, man, there's, there's a whole message on gearing your church services the wrong way, um, trying to please what you call seekers. In fact, no one in and of themselves will seek God. Um, it says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Uh, we're made to seek God, but we're, we don't. Therefore, we're not being who God made us to be. No one does good, not even one. I mean, are we going to read the rest of that? Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just listen. Think about the imagery here, guys. It's, it's actually kind of gross. Their throat is an open grave. You think about an open grave that's not covered over the, the stench of a rotting body. It's like in our sin, that's our tongues, that's our mouth, that's what's inside of us. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, concluding it all, there is no fear of God before their eyes." People think today, and it's popular in a lot of church culture, to say, well, people already know how bad they are, so let's just focus on the good news. No, people do not know how bad they are. We don't get it. We might think we're messed up, but we're a whole lot worse off than we think we are. We need to think biblically. So if we think, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay, I'm not as bad as this guy. I know I'm not as good as I should be. Um, no, no, no. Like, we're all cursed under God's law. We are all accountable to God, liable to judgment because of our sin. Every single one of us, none of us can say, well, not me, I'm the exception. There are no exceptions. Um, we are all under the judgment of God. You know, verse 18, I think, hits it big. There's no fear of God before their eyes. We don't fear God in our sin. That's our problem. There, there's no reverence for God. There's no terror in that sense of realizing if I go cross to God, I deserve his wrath and he's right to give wrath. There's none of that. The non-believer does not want to reckon with God, and that is the biggest problem. Right. There, there, there is just, you know, just think about movies that people watch or stories that we read. So often, the best stories, the most compelling narratives are the ones where the case is the most desperate right before the deliverance. So you have this moment where things get a little bit worse, and then they get worse more, and you think it's going to get better, then it gets worse again, and you get to this impossible moment in a story where there is no way out. I mean, death is coming, or whatever it may be, and there's no deliverance, and suddenly, beyond all imagining, someone steps in at sacrificial cost to themselves and saves the day. Why is it we as human beings react so strongly to those messages? We give Hollywood billions of dollars because we want to see stories of that portrayal over and over and over again. You know, the whole superhero franchise that is bigger than ever is all based on this premise right? It's an impossible moment, and there's sacrifice, and there's salvation, and everybody loves the story. Why? Well, Romans is telling us, the Bible's telling us, it is the more glorious the salvation, the more horrible the plight. And so, if, if we think we're kind of bad, then we have a kind of good salvation. And if we think that we are totally depraved, lost in sin, dead in sin, and Jesus died and raised us to life, then you have a, a new level of exaltation in what Christ is on. There's a celebration. It's this sense of, I was really ruined. I mean, I was headed towards hell. I was running towards hell. You know, the song, as I ran my hellbound race, I was running that way, and God stepped in and intervened at great cost to Christ, turning me around and saving me. If we don't understand total depravity, hell and God's wrath against us that's just, if we don't understand those things, we will not understand what Jesus did on the cross 
And we want to appreciate and be amazed and just wrecked by God's grace for us. It, it, is, it is our plight that leads to the celebration of what Christ has done. That's so good. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Romans 8, 7 and 8. We think of Romans 8 as a um, list of great promises, and there certainly is in there. But uh, listen to verse 7 and 8. Papa? Papa knows Find these. Right here. You seven and eight. these. All right. Uh, here we go. Um, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We just, that's what we're saying. There. It's a, the mind that's set on the flesh, back that those characteristics in Mark, set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Some strong language, hostile. hostile. There's a hostility that the unbeliever, I don't think, believes that they, they may not say, no, I'm not really hostile to God. But they are. Why? How can we explain Well, they're that? rejecting God. They're rejecting God's law. They're rejecting God's ways. Uh, they're, they're choosing to walk in the flesh. I want what I want when I want it. Yeah. And they don't submit, and then I think one worse, they can't submit. They don't, and they can't. And that's why Mark's message uh, last week, and, uh, and, and hopefully even some more this week, convinces us that unless the Lord moves, unless the Lord regenerates that dark, sinful, dead heart, there is no way. No, no one will ever come to the Father on his own. They want, unless Jesus draws us, unless the Holy Spirit woos us to him, that it, it can't happen. And, and then think about the unbeliever. And, and if you're Today, we can be disgusted about how unbelievers act and how they go about life, and we ought to in some ways, but what a horrible plight they're in. You look at verse 8, and it just hurts your heart to say, all unbelievers together, however seven point some billion people together today, can't please God. That's the whole reason we're here, and they can't do it. And you say, Mark, that's, that's, uh, it's, that's just a sad it's a sad state. The, to distinguish here something in our minds, and this is an important distinction, there's a difference between physical inability to do something and moral inability to do something. God does not judge someone for having the physical inability to do something. It's, it's not as though God said, I want you to jump across the Pacific Ocean, and you try as hard as you can, and you say, I can't, and God, God blames you for it, and He judges you. That's not what's going on here. That's physical inability. What's described here is not that unbelievers are physically un incapable of, of having all that they need to trust Christ. It's that they are morally incapable. And, and let me just read an extended quote from Spurgeon on moral inability. I thought this was a helpful from him. Spurgeon says, you know it's going to be good when he starts by saying, you see a sheep. That's the opening line, okay? So you're looking at a sheep. How willingly it feeds upon the herbage. You never knew a sheep to sigh after carrion meat. Uh, it, could not, it could not live on lion's food. Now bring me a wolf. And you ask me whether a wolf cannot eat grass, whether it cannot be just as docile and as domesticated as the sheep. I answer, no, because its nature is contrary unto you say, well, it has ears and legs. Can it not hear the shepherd's voice and follow him wherever it leads? Now, you see, does a wolf have the physical ability to eat grass and follow a shepherd? Yes. Does it have the moral ability? Is it, is it true to its nature? Will it ever choose that on its own? No. no. He says, I answer certainly. 
There is no physical cause why it cannot do so. The wolf act like a lamb. But its nature forbids. And therefore, I say it cannot do so. There will always be a marked distinction between it, the wolf, and the sheep because there is a distinction in nature. Now, the reason why man cannot come to Christ is not because he cannot come so far as his body or his mere power of mind is concerned, but because his nature is so corrupt that he has neither the will nor the power to come to Christ unless drawn by the Spirit. But let me give you a better illustration. Now, this is dramatic, so hold on here. You see a mother with her babe in her arms. You put a knife into her hand and tell her to stab her babe to the heart. She replies, and very truthfully, what? I cannot. Now, as far as her bodily power is concerned, if she pleased, of course she could. There's the knife and there's the child. The child could not resist, and she has quite sufficient strength in her hand immediately to stab the child to its heart. But she is quite correct when she says that she cannot do it. Do you see the difference? Physical inability is one thing. Moral inability is something else. Her nature as a mother forbids her doing a thing which her soul revolts. Simply because she is that child's mother, she feels she cannot kill it. Now, here's the point. It is even so with a sinner. Coming to Christ is so obnoxious to human nature that although so far as physical and mental forces are concerned, men could come if they would. It is strictly correct to say that they cannot and will not, though, unless the Father who sent Christ draws them to Himself. So, again, identifying how deep the depravity is, it doesn't mean when can you pray a sinner's prayer because you're scared of hell. It means Can you come to Christ because you love Him more than the praise of man, more than money, more than fame, more than power? Can you really love and delight in Him and choose Him more than everything else? And the answer is, to the unbelieving mind, and that that was me, it's folly to trust in Christ over those things. It just seems folly. You can't will it until the eyes of the heart are opened, and then now you can no longer resist the overwhelming beauty of Jesus in that moment. Verse 9, um, following up, uh, verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh can't please God. But verse 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that's the good news. That's that's the good news. If you've got the Spirit of Christ in you, you can make those moral decisions. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're toast. Good. And that's good to differentiate. Once the Lord gives you that ability, then you can please him. And, and you can begin to store up treasures. All of those things that go with being the believer that the unbeliever has no ability to, to do. One final one, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Josh Chronic, we need you up here. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And uh, this is... Again, devastating. But then verse 4, two of Papa's favorite words, but God. But God, um, yes. Being rich in mercy, that's where we want to get to, verse 4. But uh, Papa, could you read that and then throw verse 4 in for uh, um, good measure there? Um, One through three. Yep. And you were dead, dead, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Yeah. 
Give us some good news there. Read verse 4, Papa. It's too good to miss out on. But, but the, the but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read the rest. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yeah. Amen, amen, and amen. Greg, help us to understand the, the dead there, no accident, and used a number of other times. I don't know how many other times in, in Scripture. But um, dead means dead, doesn't it? Dead means dead, but what's interesting is dead people are really active. Um, it's an active deadness, if you will. Um, and this matters because some people think dead means you're, you don't do anything. Um, in this case, you're spiritually dead, and that manifests itself in certain ways in your life. And what is that? He says, this is talking to believers um, before they became Christians, uh, he said, following the course of this world. So what do dead people do? They follow the world. Whichever way the world's going, they're following that, the world. And that's a willing following. It's a they, willing, they want yes. to follow. They're not doing this, you know, the, the devil made me do it. No, the devil put it before you and you wanted to do it. The devil doesn't make you do it. You do what you want to do. Um, we alone are responsible for our behavior, um, not ultimately Satan, even though he is the prince of the power of the air and we follow him, but it's a willing following. Even if people say, well, I don't follow the devil. Well, if you're not following Jesus, that's who you're following. The Bible doesn't give us other options. Um, but he goes on to say, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. How do you know Satan is working? Well, when people aren't following God, but rebelling. It says, among whom we all once lived. So dead people are living, but it's a different kind of life than in Christ. Among whom we all once lived in what? The passions, the, the desires of our flesh, our bodies, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we were marked by, apart from Christ, what it, like we talked about, follow your heart, follow your mind, what, what your heart can desire and your mind can imagine, go for it. It's what we do. Um, and then he says, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if you want uh, God's own judgment on the, 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 the mentality that says, follow your heart, whatever you can think, do whatever you desire, you know, embrace that. What's God's judgment on that? You're a child of wrath if that's your life. That's not what is to mark us as believers. That is what marks unbelievers, that we just give ourselves over to what we think and what we desire. Um, God's judgment on that is you are a child of wrath. And we don't, as Mark was saying, we don't want to get out of that. We like that until God comes in and opens our minds and suddenly what once was beautiful to us becomes we see it for what it really is. It's ugly, it's festering, it's rotting. And then what used to be uninteresting, Christ, the gospel, the word of God, suddenly takes on beauty. There's glory and we have to have it. Um, but we can't do that. God is the one who has to do it. Um, and we don't start the process. God starts the process because again, verse four, God made us alive or verse five, made us alive together with Christ. We will not start following Jesus. We will not start desiring Jesus until God gives us new life in Jesus. And let me just jump off that. So a big debate that people will sometimes have is which comes first, logically, does faith come first and then new life in Christ? 
So I'm dead, and I put my faith in Christ. I make that decision. And then as immediate response to my choice to believe, God then makes me alive. That's, that's, a lot of people believe that. And the other option is, no, 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 you're, you're dead, and so you're following your flesh all day long will, willingly, and you don't want Christ because He's not compelling to you, and one day the Lord opens your eyes, He makes you alive, and your necessary and true choice in response is belief. And so, w- which comes first? And I, I would just, first thing, and there's a lot of things you could say here. First thing is, it does say that we're dead. So, how could a dead person make the most important good decision you've ever made in your life when you're dead? Then that would mean you're not really dead. It means you're almost dead, or you're sick, or you're not doing well, or you're incapacitated. No, 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 dead. So, that, you couldn't make the, the most important positive decision of your life when you're dead, otherwise you're not dead. But the other thing is this, if you can repent and believe before you are made alive, then why do you need to be made alive? If you can repent and believe before the new birth, then what does the new birth actually do that's required? The whole point is you cannot morally, not physically, you cannot morally repent and believe because you are dead in your love of sin. And so what has to come first is new life in Christ, which immediately creates delight in Christ and the choice of Christ. But to say that I can repent and believe before I'm born again, well, then why do you need to be born again? If you can repent and believe without it, you don't need it because what you just need for the Christian life is repentance and faith. And so you've got all you need to live the Christian life before the new birth, which obviously that does not make sense. That's why Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to that, to, to our spirit. I hope a look at those eight passages is so good that convince us. You know, they're, it's very convincing, I think, to, to where we start without, without the Lord. We have about 10 minutes. What do you see in Grudem from, because he's kind of moving on all kinds of things that most impacted you. And Papa, I would like to start the same thing, hit Papa and I on page 212, if, if you have your Absolutely. I, th- I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Since, uh, really sin good. doesn't make sense, in bottom line. It, it really doesn't. Uh, Grudem says, finally, we should note that all sin is ultimately irrational. It really didn't make sense for Satan to rebel against God in the expectation of being able to exalt himself above God before the creation of the world. These were foolish choices. And he closes in that same paragraph. Though people sometimes persuade themselves that they have good reasons for sinning, when examined in the cold light of truth on the last day, it will be seen in every case that sin ultimately just does not make sense. Now, too bad we don't all sit back and rationally think about sin before we sin. Mm-hmm. I think it's oftentimes more of an impulsive thing. Like I think you said it, Greg, something we want it with something we want, an action that we desire. And so just like in James, it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and there we are. I think it's a helpful motivation to just say what I'm about to do here. I need to think through this. This doesn't make sense. That's right. sinful, whether that would be anger, whether that would be lust, whether that would be um, whatever that would be, um, we need to say, this is illogical. It's, it's robbing God of glory, most importantly, but it's also just doesn't make sense, and it's just illogical, Greg. Um, all right, I'm going to read from the London Baptist Confession, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, and then give Grudem's actual definition from, for sin. He's got a good one. Um, this is what the first paragraph says. It says, Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, 
Yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given to them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. And so Grudem's definition, I think flowing out of that, he says this, we may define sin as follows. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. We could say attitude or desire. And so sin, we, we have to have a reference point. God um, has a law, a moral law, a standard that we as his image bearers are bound to keep, um, which is, you know, love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors, ourselves. And we could flesh that out in a lot of ways. Um, but sin is any failure to conform to that law, any failure to line up with. And we could say in terms of omission and commission, omission meaning God says this is what you should do and we don't do it. Or commission, God says don't do this and we do it. That's sin. Anytime we fail to conform to God's perfect standard, that is sin. And if you just take that one definition into your everyday life, you will see, if you're like any of us, like we, we are desperately in need of a Savior. How many times in a day do we fail to perfectly conform to God's perfect standard for us? More times than we can count. Um, and if we're honest with ourselves, like we will realize at the end of the day, I have nothing to boast in, not one thing. The only boast I can have is in Christ. And you think about the significance of this. Never once did Jesus fail to conform to God's law. Never once did he fail to conform to God's perfect standard. At every single point of testing, he obeyed God and he conformed. And he didn't just do it for himself, he did it for us. Because he knew billions of times we would fail. So billions of times he succeeded. Perfect God joined to, to humanity. It's not just for one person, it's for everyone who trusts in him. I think that's good news because we realize even today, this morning, this morning and, and coming up here to church today, we have failed to conform to the moral law of God. But Jesus always did, and he did it for us. Can I, can I just add with that yeah, real quick? Please. So just, just, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to Philippians 3. You know these verses. Paul says about his own bragging rights here. Uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So just remember this. Paul looks at all of his accomplishments that came from his flesh as an unbeliever, his religious accomplishments from flesh, and he calls it, remember the word scubalon, the word for dung in the King James, sewage, uh, refuse, rubbish. He says, all my best deeds, this is the polluted garment version, all my best deeds were scubalon. They were, they were refuse. They were rubbish. They were, uh, they, they were disgusting compared to Christ. And he turns and says, in order that I may be found in Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's that accomplishment of Jesus that clothes Paul. R.C. called that uh, extra nos, outside of oneself, the righteousness, the alien righteousness, Luther called it. It's not inherent in us. It comes 
through Christ. Yes. Yep. Mark, I've heard you talk about this, and kind of as a bonus feature, all that we've talked about here, the unpardonable sin. Oh, no. He talks about that at the end. Yeah, can you give us a two-minute explanation? Jerry, I've been struggling with that recently. I don't think I'm the person. I've been trying to figure that out recently. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll give it a quick shot. Um, the unpardonable sin, it's... Um, you remember Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. They're accusing him basically of being uh, filled with a demon and that all the miracles that he's doing is actually uh, Satan doing that through him. And so Jesus, in light of that, says, um, you know, you can speak a word against the Son of Man. That can be forgiven you. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so the unpardonable sin um, specifically, contextually, is dealing with attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan in Jesus. So it's very focused on Christ and all that he was saying, all that he was doing, saying, no, that's not God, that's Satan working through him, okay? And you say, why would Jesus say it'll never be forgiven this, forgiven this unpardonable sin? Because to come to a point where you are saying that Jesus was actually Satan at work, you have reached a point in your heart to where there's no going back. Um, and I don't know how you diagnose that in a person other than to say someone is so hard against God, so hard against Jesus that they don't care what they say. Um, and so the reason this matters is Christians will ask all of them, did I commit I the unpardonable it? sin? If you even have a conscience that cares, you haven't done it, okay? Because these people won't care. Someone who has committed this, uh, will not have a conscience left to afflict them for saying such a thing. You, the Bible talks about people having seared consciences, and it's the picture of like if your flesh has been burned really bad, it gets hard and it's callous and it's unfeeling. There's no feeling left in it. And that's this type of person. Their conscience is so dead, it's so burnt over, it's so calloused that there's no feeling, and they will make statements like that and never be afflicted by it. But again, we don't know who has done that. Yeah. And so as far as we are concerned, we should never say, well, that person's beyond hope. No, we still preach the gospel. We never withhold hope. We never withhold the, the hope of forgiveness and the hope of righteousness and salvation from a person because only God actually knows who's done that. But if, if you at all are concerned that maybe you have, I can guarantee you, you have not because you still care. And Hebrews 6 would be a great possible yeah. parallel to what Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 would be a good po parallel passage on that topic. It's good. What he said, Jerry. Yeah, I, I got it. Love Is it. Is that helpful? That yes. was good. Okay, good. Yeah. Thanks. Mark, would you pray? Yes. Heavenly Father, um, when we consider what Scripture really does say about us in our natural state, it is devastating that we were so in love with our sin and we so loved the darkness that we would not come to the light because our deeds would be exposed. It was not a physical inability that kept us from the light. It was a moral love of the things of the flesh that kept us from coming to your holiness. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all know that that is true of us, that you had to step in, you had to intervene, you had to call us savingly from death to life, and you had to give us the gift of faith and the gift of repentance so that we could willingly turn from our sin and trust in Jesus and be completely forgiven and covered because Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought in. And I pray that the darkness and the, the evil of our own heart 
would help us more appreciate and be amazed by the grace that saved us, it is all the more shocking and stunning in light of total depravity and total inability. And so, God, I pray that these truths would not leave us depressed, that they would help us to better appreciate the the finished work of Jesus and the transforming work of Your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We will um, head, what's, what's next? I'm mixing up my order here. What happens after sin? Person of Christ. Wait, is there person of Christ? That's right. Chapter 14 next week, uh, Lord willing. So thank you very much for um, investing this time and uh, having a greater understanding of sin and our problems.